That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name's Beth Mullins, and my dilemma is the construction project that's going on outside of my house, and they are building not only um, condos and office space, but a spectacular park. And the construction work is better than any reality TV show you've ever seen. And I am spending way too much time looking out my window, trying to figure out exactly what the park is going to look like. It's going to be spectacular. And it's eating up way too much of my time. Well, that was a twist, to be sure, because I thought we were dealing with the loud noises, early call times, you know, all the usual construction across the street woes that you hear about. The construction as compelling television problem. This is one I haven't heard. Uh, but I guess the only way to treat anything that you know is going to divert you from other tasks and things you need to do is proactive measures. For instance, if I know if I have to sit down and write some sort of long story for ESPN, I have to close out all the other tabs on my computer because if I spot a Facebook notification or a little Twitter notification, I'll absentmindedly click over, I'll start scrolling, I'll get lost in the black hole of my menchies and waste a whole hour that I'm supposed to be writing. I also can't listen to music when I'm writing because I'll start singing along with them. So I use this uh, this website called Coffitivity and it plays background noise as if you're in a coffee shop. I think you can select coffee shop or lunchroom or whatever else. Um, so those are my proactive measures. I'm sure yours will be different, but if you need to get work done, for instance, maybe set up in a room that has no windows towards the construction site. If you're forced to do the dishes or some other task in front of a window that looks out and you can't do it anywhere else, set a timer by which you have to complete that task so that you can't dilly-dally and daydream about the construction work or construction workers for that matter, if you're lucky. Uh, if that doesn't work, I get the feeling that that construction work probably won't be so much of a draw in a week or so when college football is back on. That's my best guess. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is ESPN play-by-play announcer and reporter for the NFL, college football, softball, basketball. Also works for CBS. Also the play-by-play voice for the Oakland Raiders. Preseason games since 2015. Beth Moens. She became the second woman to call nationally televised college football games for ESPN in 2005. The first woman to call a nationally televised NFL game in 2017 when she was just the second female play-by-play announcer in NFL regular season history overall. Loved this conversation with Beth. Um, just the, the insight into how much work goes into this job, particularly how long ago it was that she started and got the itch. She was calling games while watching TV at eight years old. Uh, she was a PA announcer for local high school games when she was 10. So just the itch that she got and how she followed it, um, the advice that she gives to be yourself. You know, if you're going to succeed or fail, you don't want to do that on somebody else's terms. Her clapbacks for fans who claim that she and other announcers are biased is great. Uh, she talks about the things that all the crews want when they go on a, a trip out to a game. One of them is a good local bar, which I love. Um, and just uh, all the people behind the scenes that go into putting on a, a game broadcast, stuff that I'm sure you've never heard before. So I love this interview. Uh, I hope you guys like it, too. That's what she said. So happy to have Beth Moens join me on the podcast. And 
I just spoke to your good friend, Holly Rose. So before we get to all of the stuff about your career and how you came to be such a prominent uh, announcer and reporter, we need to talk about the fact that you just got married and Holly Rowe was your reverend, right? <laughs> reverend Rowe, indeed. And she <laughs> was awesome. You know, we we had been planning it for a couple of years, and so when it came time to, you know, kind of figure out who the officiant would be, another one of our friends was getting married a few weeks before us, and Holly was the officiant. And, of course, she chimed in immediately with, well, I'd love to do it. And so we thought, what a better way to really make it lighthearted and fun with a little poetry and a, and a little sentimental and she nailed it all. She was terrific. And uh, it was just a, a picture-perfect day. We, we couldn't have hoped for anything better with the sun out, and, and everything looked really good. And, um, you know, my dad walked me down the aisle. Of course, we had to stick some sports in there. He's a huge Notre Dame fan. <laughs> so instead of the bridal procession, we played Wake Up the Echoes, uh, the Notre Dame fight song, as oh, he was nice. walking me down the aisle. <laughs> And then we capped it off with a um, with a post first dance interview with Holly. Uh, oh my gosh! Dance floor, dance floor side, if you will. Um, and we had the you know we had the the towels and the Gatorade and all that stuff as if it was an actual post game. <laughs> oh my and she gosh! Nailed I love that, that as well. With That's fantastic. Questions. I always oh. tell people when they're planning their weddings to do as much as they can to make it very specific to them. And have it not be about all the tradition, some of the tradition if you want it, but have it be yeah. like what makes it specific to them. So that sounds just fantastic. Well, congratulations. You're a newlywed. It was very recent. So um very happy to have you on while you're still, you know, post-wedded bliss. Uh- <laughs> yes, yes. We're, we're looking for things now to fill our time with since we're not stressed out about the I wedding. know, right? <laughs> well, maybe you should maybe you should take up being a side reverend. That seems to be keeping her busy, so. <laughs> <laughs> Football is um, arriving at just the right time. That there you go. There you go. Um all right, let's go way back now. You know, you're now married and 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 settled into adult life, but at one time, you were just a kid growing up in Syracuse, New York, and I read that you were 8 years old when you started watching TV and calling games. That blows my mind. What kind of environment were you in that you were already that avid of a sports fan? Yeah. And what inspired you to want to call alongside instead of just watching? Well, I, I had a, a few things going for me. Um, first and foremost of which my dad was a high school basketball coach. And my mom was also a huge sports fan, actually grew up in Canada. So she brought hockey into our world. Mm. Um, And then I was also uh, blessed with three brothers. And so we had our own cabal that we could roam around the neighborhood and just drum up whatever game we wanted to play. And there were always kids, you know, back in those days out and about. And and so my early days were wiffle ball and kickball and ghosts in the graveyard and and anything competitive, you know, that we could find to, to fill our days. And I, I, so I was always a sports fan. And then I remember, you know, it's that whole thing of if you see it, you can believe it. And it was Phyllis George. And I I didn't know anything about the politics or who she was or why she was on the NFL Today show. I just saw this woman on the NFL Today show and she was talking about football. And um, that immediately caught my eye. And it was just one of those moments, you know, I turned to my mom and said, hey, I, I think I want to do that. Can I do that? And 
And my mother, who was, you know, just one of the most awesome people ever, simply said, yes, you can. And really, that's that's all I needed. And so, you know, I had a bit of a ham in me. And and so as we're out there playing football and playing dodgeball, I'm not only involved, but I'm I'm barking out the play by play, uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of my friends. But (laughs) that's kind of how it all got started. Um, And so I, I was one of those people that knew at an early age exactly what I wanted to do. And it was just a matter of trying to figure out the path to get there. That's that's really funny. I actually remember after one of my high school basketball games, I had a friend on the other team, so I fake interviewed her for the camera about losing to us, which um, <laughs> at the time, I, I like you said, you could see it, you can be it. I, my parents were not really into sports, so we never watched ESPN. We watched a lot of Bulls for me because I wanted to watch, but there were no women doing anything, yeah. so it just did not occur to me. But it's funny when I look back now and think, you know, I was, you know, jumping ahead at the high school. I didn't know yet what I was up to, but there was something in there. Yeah. Um, I give a lot of credit to my dad for that. You know, when he was coaching, we had two gyms, gymnasiums at our high school. So we would all pile into the station wagon. And during, while he was practicing, we'd be all be in the other gym playing ball. And, and um, you know, I still... I still see us playing bocce ball in our backyard and my dad with it, with his beer in one hand and his yardstick in the other hand. His <laughs> final word was was the final say of who was closest to the ball and <laughs> and just that that competitive fire, you know, I I love to tell the story of, you know, one Halloween a, a bunch of local punks roamed the neighborhood and they ripped down all of the baskets. Oh. All everybody's baskets so we had nowhere to play. So my dad calls up my uncle peewee uncle don who worked for the phone company <laughs> and they cement they cut a telephone pole in half cemented it into the yard next to the driveway and that's what we hung our basketball hoop on wow. and the last time i was home 40 years later that thing is still standing wow. in our old in our old house and that was sort of the competitive fire that that he lit in me at a, at a very young age to figure out a way to get things done I love that. You also, according to another interview I read, you were in junior high and you were doing public address announcing for the high school basketball and high school football games. How does that happen? And were you like a little pipsqueak? Like, was that, did you sound like the average little junior high kid doing this? <laughs> I probably did looking back. You know, I, I, again, I, I had a bit of a leg up because my dad was a coach. And, and worked and taught in the school system. And actually, my mom was a school nurse in our school system. So I kind of had the connection to do the public address. My dad, for a little extra cash, was the clock operator, the scoreboard operator during football season. And so I would go with him to the games, and I would be the PA announcer. And then I started doing that for his basketball games as well. And that was just sort of you know, my, my first paying gig, if you will, my first on-air experience was, was old public address for the high school sports. And you were 10 or 11? Uh, probably, yeah. And I, I, I didn't do it any longer once I started playing. Yeah. Um, you know, I just got, got too busy. Had to find other, other times a year to do stuff. Yeah. 
So you were very busy, basketball, softball, and soccer at North Syracuse High School and mm-hmm. uh, went on to play basketball in college. So throughout all of high school, as you're participating in sports and then you're going on to play collegiate basketball, you still have this dream and this intent to work in sports? Or did you ever waver? Yeah. No, you know, it's it's one of those things, for better or worse, Sarah, I, I really didn't have anything else I wanted to do. There was no other option. There was no fallback position. I'm, you know, when you're, uh, all your college buddies are graduating and going to work on Wall Street um, or for the big banks and, and uh, living large, and, and my first radio gig, I think, paid me $19,000, and I'm living... <laughs> in a, you know, in a third story walk up with no AC, um, had there been something else or had I not just been passionate about one thing, I I probably would have walked away, but I, I loved every minute of it and was constantly, you know, thinking, okay, this is just a step. This is just a start and make all of this count and, and build on it. So eventually things get a little bit bigger and a little bit better. So let's go back to college quickly. Uh, you graduated with a BA in um, what, what was your undergraduate degree? Journalism? I no, I was actually an English major. Even though I knew okay. I wanted to get into broadcast journalism, I got some really great advice. You know, I, I asked a lot of questions, and, and people said, "Actually, you can get the journalism and the broadcasting um, on your own, nights, weekends, summer, but get a liberal arts degree so you're doing a lot of reading and a yeah. lot of writing." And you're improving your communication skills. You know, I, I tell people that that you need to know a little bit about a lot, and you need to be able to have conversations with people about almost anything because it really, right. at at its base, is still a people person job, and it's all about your networking and your ability to communicate. And so that was a, the perfect way for me to go. And then I went back and got my master's in broadcast journalism, and got all those wonderful connections through Syracuse University in the Newhouse School. Yeah, so back at Lafayette, you um, you were a 1,000-point scorer, still the all-time assist leader for the school, a member of the Hall of Fame. Do you remember trying to balance your basketball career with studies and partying and everything else in college? Was it a pretty joyful time for you? Was it stressful? Uh, what, what, what was college like? It was pretty joyful. I, I, I marvel, you know, when I look around at, at people that didn't, play sports and, and wonder what did you do with all your time uh, right if the, my the roommates were any the, indication they yeah. just sat around a table for a while after class before it was time to start drinking oh man <laughs> just chatted it, it, te- it teaches you so much wonderful stuff um from time management to pressure management to you know all kinds of things that that help you later on so it was uh, to me i didn't know any other way to do it you know you you work hard you study hard you practice hard you play hard. You probably party hard from time to time. But, you know, that's uh, with all your teammates is, and, and your friends, it's building that team chemistry. You know, I always like to say my parents raised a point guard, and that's always the mentality I've had in, in whatever I approach. And that that's why I'm so proud still of, of the assist record, because the whole thing is how do you make the people around you better to help you all achieve your common goal? And that's something I still try and do on every job at ESPN that I go work on or at CBS. Yeah. So you get to Syracuse to get your master's. You were honored with the Marty Glickman Award for Leadership in Sports mm-hmm. Media back in 2015. You're still uh, you're, you're a part of the Greater Syracuse Hall of Fame. That happened in 2009. So it sounds like you really capitalized on your experience there and are still 
you know, noticed and remembered for, for your greatness now. Um, what was that experience like? Because, you know, I never, I never did the, the masters and never did the journalism school in, in any capacity, but obviously Syracuse is the best of the bunch and, and the connections alone, I would think would be worth it. Yeah. You know, it, it was, um, really one of those things where, okay, what comes first as I'm, uh, graduating undergrad, a job or grad school? And, and it was actually the very first year I kind of got lucky. Um, that they started a master's at Newhouse, and it was actually just a single year. You started right after graduation in the summer. You went all year and continued through the next summer to graduate. And it was a wonderful experience to be there. It was back in my hometown, so I knew all about the tradition of Newhouse and all the greats, you know, Albert and, and Costas and Stockton. And actually, while I was there, Mike Tarico was working locally, um, and he actually is a guy that I interned for at the CBS affiliate in Syracuse. He and a guy by the name of John Eves, who ultimately is the guy that gave me my very first job in, in radio. So definitely the connections there and the contacts that you still are able to take advantage of today. And, and also now to, to give back, you see so many good young people, a, a kid from my high school that went to Syracuse, just graduated. He got a job with the AAA affiliate in town and, and so many young women now that are, are interested not only in being sideline reporters, but now they also want to be play-by-play. They also want to be an analyst like Doris or Jessica. They also want to be a reporter or uh, somebody like a Sarah Spain or, or that is <laughs> on all the, all the TV shows. And, and, and so, th- so many more doors are open. It's great to see, you know, where we came from. When I was there, there was probably only three or four of us. Yeah, and so much of that is what you mentioned before of once that first couple per people have gone through and and made an example, then everybody else feels that they can aspire to that and do it, which is which is huge and you're obviously a huge part of that too. So you you get out of Syracuse and you mentioned uh, a couple early jobs. Was the news and sports director in Homer, New York? That was the first one? That was the very first one. What and do you that, know about being also- a sports director right out of school? <laughs> Uh, that's a very good question. And, um, <laughs> one of the things that I've always loved about this job is sometimes you're just flying by the seat of your pants and making mm-hmm. it up as you go along, mm-hmm. um, and sort of relying on, on your training and your own, um, street sense to, to figure things out. Um, it was a, a wonderful experience up at the crack of dawn, you know, sports director, news director, morning sidekick, afternoon DJ, and and I also the 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 real capper on the job was they were doing all the local high school sports. So I was 21 years old, and they also did local Cortland Red Dragons football. So I'm calling college football, basketball, wrestling, softball, lacrosse, you name it. It was a great proving ground from a play-by-play standpoint. Um, all, all week long and over the weekends, I would still be able to go. It was only about 45 minutes away from Syracuse, be able to drive back up there and work my way back into Syracuse University sports that were televised locally. So this is the early 90s, and it feels like even just since I started with ESPN about 10 years ago, there have been massive changes in reception for women and opportunities and the jobs that we can do. 
take me back to early 90s and and obviously you've got a ton on your resume and you can show up with the credentials as a as a journalism major and with experience what was the reception like in most places maybe from the coaches or other journalists you know it it was pretty positive and i i i think i've been lucky over the years um it's funny when people ask about what the reception was from coaches from players from former athletes that have been in the arena, for lack of a better term, there has always been, and even today, if you walk into an NFL meeting room to talk to a coach, there is that mentality of, you have a chance to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a chance to allow you to earn my respect. And so from that standpoint, it was all very positive, and that was right up my alley. Just let me show you what I can do. Let me prove it. And again, you, you... you sometimes you get lucky uh, with events that are happening around you, and it was right around that time where ESPN and local, you know, like Fox affiliates and, and places like that were starting to put on more women's sports. And so, you know, I, I like to say, you know, have I gotten jobs because I'm a woman? Yeah. Have I not gotten jobs because I'm a woman? Probably a lot more. But I've right. still gotten enough jobs to get me in the door and call, hey, let's have that woman call this women's basketball game. And then once you're in, then you can start making a little noise and start pestering. Hey, let, give me a chance to call a men's game. Hey, give me a chance to work that sport. Or a lot of times it's you get the gigs that nobody else wants. Hey, you want to go call these volleyball matches? Yeah, sure. And then two hours later, hey, we got the national championship. We want you to call that too. Okay, fabulous. Soccer was blowing up, and obviously basketball was, was huge for me to, to kind of get my foot in the door. And then you do start coming up against some resistance when you start working men's games. And if there's a choice between putting you on the sideline so they can use a, a male play-by-play, that was often the case. And so I fought that for a long time right. of – yeah, I'll be a reporter. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a damn good job for you. But ultimately, I, I want to be up there because that is the hardest job in sports, by the way. And I always tell, you know, young girls that ask me about, you know, being a sideline, I said, you got to love it. You got to be passionate about it because that is hard work. And it wasn't what I loved. I wanted to be somewhere else. So, I, you know, you got to kind of not only carve out your own niche, but create your own niche sometimes and utilize that to help you continue to move around and move up. Time for a quick break. And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Women of Marvel is the place to hear from women making waves in comics, pop culture, entertainment, and beyond. This official Marvel podcast is hosted by Marvel's own Sanaa Amanit and Judy Stevens, who have over 25 years of working at Marvel between them. They chat with people from all backgrounds who have inspiring stories to tell. Sanaa and Judy welcome guests from every part of the Marvel Universe, including Rachel McAdams, Gillian Jacobs, and Evangeline Lilly. You can find Women of Marvel every other Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's what she said. You know, you mentioned that coaches and players tend to be pretty open-minded and without, you know, with some exceptions, there are always the the bad eggs. Um, That seems to be the case, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's usually other journalists. And I have found that in my career. I have not had problems with players and coaches. I have, when I was in the locker rooms and clubhouses, had issues with other journalists, particularly Mm -hmm. older male journalists who maybe aren't used to women being around. Um, What do you attribute that? And do you find... 
if you can tell at all, that it happens with the ones who didn't play versus the ones who did, and maybe the ones who were athletes kind of see you the same way as the coaches and players do? You know, I think sometimes, from my experience, when you show up and you're, I don't like to say I'm different, I'm unique. Um, but when you're unique and you stand out, you can attract a lot of attention, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But certainly you can catch the boss's eye, too, because you stand out. Right. And so I think for a lot of other journalists or a lot of other announcers, yeah, there, there's a lot of competition. Um, you want to succeed. You want your friends in the business to succeed. But there is a lot of competition, and especially for the women back in the early days, all you needed was one, right? Oh, oh we, we already got a woman. We don't need another one. And so often that pitted woman against woman trying to fight for that job. Or I think also a lot of the older guys were very wary. You know, we all fear change to a certain extent. Um, you know, change is coming, and I don't know if there's anything I can do to stop it. And now instead of just competing against these guys, now I've got all these women to compete against too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, take me through the couple gigs that kind of got you in front of ESPN folks for them to see you and hire you in 94. Well, I was um, involved with the very first year that the Big East Conference actually started to do a um, a, a women's basketball package. And I, I can still see myself with the, with the big um, puffy 80s hair and my gold. Remember the old Century 21 jackets, those gold? Yeah. It's almost like a Hall of Fame jacket that I yeah. had on. Flying to Providence to interview for that job. And, and I ultimately got it and started calling Big East games. And again, it was right around the time that UConn took off. And so I was also calling um, the local UConn games on, on their public broadcasting channel back in those days. And that, I think, is what initially sort of got me in, in front of some ESPN people, especially working up in Connecticut a lot. So were there nerves to join the national coverage? Um, it, I think it was one of those things where there was absolutely nerves. It was, you know, be careful what you wish for. You may get it. <laughs> and for my entire childhood, knowing that I wanted to do this, and, oh, my gosh, ESPN is this, you know, special place high on a hill, and all these people are the, the cream of the crop and the best of the best. And and um, so there were definitely nerves um, for a while just being around anything ESPN because it was it was big and still is today. And, and then you eventually get a little more comfortable. You start working with a lot of the same people um, over and over. And, and I think that's ultimately what helped me settle down was, okay, I, I am a member of this team. And every time you go out on a game, these are, these are my teammates. And, and I kind of fell back into relying on, you know, what I knew and, and what my training was in, in sports. So you started calling college football in 2005 only the second woman to call nationally televised college football. Uh, what was it like to transition from mostly covering women, especially nationally, to a men's sport? And, and were there reservations about how you'd be received? Um, there, there weren't any reservations on my end. Um, you know, I, I, I think if you talk to any play-by-play announcer or, or a lot of the people that, that end up on television, you know, you have to be confident in what you do. And a lot of that, uh, most of that comes from your preparation and your repetition. And, you know, I, I knew I was ready. I knew I was going to, to be well prepared. Um, and, and honestly, I, I had already called 
a ton of college football, um, you know, on the radio. And I actually was calling some football back um, when I was still working in the in the local Syracuse market. So I do remember the biggest adjustment was the fact that the press box is so far away and often so high up off the field. That was the that was really the big adjustment in, in terms of moving into football. And it's a much bigger game board with a lot more people. So that right. was the other thing that you kind of had to figure out, you know, what, okay, what do I want it to look like? How big should the numbers and names be? What information do I need on here? And, and uh, you know, that, that was the stuff that, you know, you kind of had to figure out as you went along. I think the scariest thing for me, whenever people say, oh, you should do that, at, oh, I'm, I'm okay, is the application of every little rule in the moment, knowing exactly what should have been called, why it wasn't called, um, pointing out strategy that was that was poor or wrong in a time because of X or Y reason. How do you feel so comfortable with all of that, that in that split second, you know, you're not missing anything? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of that is just the repetition, number one. And number two, the relationship that you build with your um, analyst who's standing right next to you, with your spotter who is helping you out in the booth, you know, that's the, that's the guy that, that helps point out who made a tackle or who made a hit or what the penalty may be referring to um, that you didn't see right away as the play was happening. And, and then the producer that's in your ear in the truck who has the ability to give you another set of eyes to see a replay to, you know, be in contact with the official to okay, here's exactly what they're referring to. Um, you do have to kind of play with the language a little bit. You know, they don't, it's a pretty good rule of thumb not to speculate too much about some of that stuff, but you do want to provide all the options of what exactly may have happened or what went wrong. And so that's kind of just sort of, really feeling good about the language and that's where the English background comes in right. um, and, and how, how you say things and how you sort of set a tone. I think a lot of the, what the play by play person does is also set the tone for any discussion that you're having on the air. So for those who haven't been in a booth or don't know all the behind the scenes, you just mentioned a few people, but maybe take us through who's actually in there and, and how do you guys all work together to put together a broadcast? Yeah. One, one of these days, Sarah, when I, when I write my movie, that I'm, I, that's <laughs> what I'm coming on the air with. The, the greatest chaotic scene of what it's like in a production truck in a booth right. for, for a major event. I, I, I keep telling my bosses at some point we need to put on, while we're calling a game on ESPN – put on ESPNU and have cameras in the truck and cameras in the booth so that people That'd can actually fascinating. see the choreographed dance that is going on. So in the booth, say for a football game, when I'm looking out at the field, I got a stat guy to my left. I got a spotter to my right. And right next to him is my analyst. Stat guy is constantly passing us information. We may have a discussion before the game. Hey, uh, Josh Jacobs is about to, um, set a new rushing record if he gets 58 yards so we may pinpoint a few things to watch for the analyst tells him hey i want to know keep me updated how many sacks how many qb hurries how many hits on this quarterback he's injured coming in so you know they're passing us stuff you know what's the quarterback doing in the first quarter uh, maybe he's turned things around a lot in the second half you know all kinds of information 
if we can use it, we get it in. Sometimes we may wait till a commercial break because the truck wants to put together a graphic that you see pop on the bottom of your screen. My spotter is the guy up there who, uh, before a play happens, we've got our own set of hand signals. Uh, you got two, two new wide receivers that are coming in from the sideline. He may point at my board to help me ID which guys to the near side and which guys to the far side. Um, he, he usually will help locate who made the tackle or, you know, on a crazy play, we've got our own set of signals for um, he'll point to my board at, at 89 and he'll give me the, that's the guy that had the strip sack. And then he'll point at 42. That's the guy who scooped. And then he'll point at 23. That's the guy he laterals it to as he's running the other way for a touchdown. So it's all kinds of stuff like that. And then obviously, first and foremost, I'm paying attention to my analyst up there in the booth. We've established a few things that we definitely want to talk about during the game and set up with our producer. Um, at some point, let's show the footwork of this left tackle. He's the best guy in, in, in the game. You know, let's keep an eye on this one-on-one matchup, uh, the best corner against the best receiver, you know, all kinds of things like that. And then out of the production truck, you know, we have our producer who is in our ear letting us know if a graphic is coming, letting us know if a replay is coming. Okay, after this play, we're throwing down to the field to our sideline, all kinds of traffic cop kind of stuff like that. And so it's um, – there's a lot going on, uh, and we might ask the director, hey, get us a shot of the coach on the opposite sideline. He's going crazy right now on the official. And the first rule of thumb, Sarah, is the people at home can only see what's on the screen. Right. So if you want to talk about something, you've got to choreograph that with the whole crew yeah. to get that on the screen for them to see. And, and so there's a lot of that that goes on to build towards a, a moment or a story that we want to tell. You know, it very much as you describe them as teammates, and it is, and, and there's a lot of kind of that stuff that people don't understand, right? If your spotter or, or stats guy gives you the wrong info and you say it, you're the one who's going to get all the hate in your menchies, and you're, gonna, you're the yeah. one who's going to get criticized for having it wrong. So there's so much trust that goes into that kind of back and forth, right? Yes, and that's actually why they first started – you know, to put together the same crew each week for yeah. football. And, and now actually more and more you're seeing that in basketball too, where you're, you're working with a lot of the same people week in and week out so you can build that trust and that momentum. Talk about finding your own voice and style because it's one of the things that when I talk to younger up and up and coming people, I say, you know, you, it's great to follow people that you think are doing a great job and to figure out what it is about them that you like, but don't copy them or you're just going to be sort of a B rate version. Find out what's unique to you. As you were coming up and getting started, did you find a moment when you stopped maybe replicating what you had seen and started to do your own thing? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I've had some wonderful mentors over the years. Um, who have, have helped guide me. And first and foremost is you got to be yourself. If you're going to succeed or fail, you don't want it to be on someone else's terms. Hmm. I, I knew obviously as, as one of the few women that were doing this, that I was going to sound unique and that it may be an adjustment for people to get used to a female voice. So don't doctor it up. Don't try and sound deeper. Don't try and change your tone or, or anything like that. I just, you know, from standing in front of a mirror 
and working on my on-camera when I was little or sitting in front of the TV with the volume down and just calling games as I was watching them just helped me kind of find cadence and flow and contour in your voice and what's your vocabulary um what you know how much do you want to utilize your sense of humor that was something when i was younger believe it or not i I wasn't real confident socially around my peers and so i i would use a sense of humor to kind of make myself feel comfortable and kind of put everybody else at ease that was something that i did so I've, i've always tried to incorporate a sense of humor in in my call. And, and I've been real lucky over the years. Um, I I don't know whether it was intended or not, but I, I, I've had a hand in, in starting out the careers of a lot of young announcers. And I've always felt part of that reason is because I, I like to develop chemistry and I like to, um, you know, let sort of help people bring out their voice, um, you know, working with, with Doris when she was younger and some of Jay Billis's first games on a rare were WNBA games when he, he was starting out. And and then you, you luck into people like a Julie Foudy um, when she first started out calling soccer and Karch Karai and Rebecca Lobo and finding a way to let your analysts be themselves and say what they want to say and see what they think is important to the people at home has, has always been a big part of of my voice. I don't like to ask a lot of questions when I'm on the air. I like to try and anticipate where they want to go or what they want to talk about and start a conversation that leads them into that direction. I'm not interviewing them. I'm talking to them like you are at home on the couch with your friends while you're watching the game. And so that's kind of the other part of the style that I've, I've tried to incorporate. And, and honestly, it's, it's changing a bit now around us because Strong opinions are so highly valued in an analyst, and some people think that should also be the case with play-by-play announcers. Hmm. I'm an old schooler. I, I, you know, I, I'm. I've always said I'm Switzerland on the air, and I, I think, <laughs> I think you sort of need that center of the road to allow your analyst to swerve a bit with their opinions, and so that I've kind of held firm to that as well. I'm. I'm. I'm not. Nothing wrong with sharing an opinion every once in a while, but that's not necessarily what my voice is as a play-by-play. One of the toughest things in sports is that there's constantly changing information, injuries, trades, comments that were made, etc. Was there a moment in your career when you felt like you stopped worrying about having to know everything or at least felt prepared enough that if you made a mistake or misspoke once, it wasn't the end of the world? Because I think it feels like there's so much more pressure as a woman that if you say one thing wrong, well, you shouldn't have your job then, right? Versus a guy, well, he misspoke, right? (laughs) Was there a time that that stopped being so stressful for you? Um, I'm sure there was. I I can't think of anything like in particular, but probably a few years after um, I started calling football and you you just, you stop worrying about the opinions of people that that don't matter, that, that aren't, you know, and have your best interest in mind. Nobody feels worse than you do when you find out you made a mistake or you misspoke. But honestly, when you're on the air 300 hours a year or whatever we're doing, you're going to have some. You're going right. to have some goofs, and that doesn't define who you are as opposed to the other 299 hours that you were killing it. So 
one of the things we started doing actually is when we go to a game, I will have a spotter. I don't, I don't like to put my Twitter on or, or my phone on um, during a game, but it, I have found it can be useful for analysts sometimes when their friends who also played the game might text them something or right. another analyst who worked the game last week might text them something. But what I do is I, I have the spotter follow like the local beat writers or, or our ESPN writers. And often they are the ones that are breaking news in game. Hey, so-and-so is not going to return, you know, is out with an injury. Whereas we can't wait. They won't talk to us per se on the air. So then we can start to investigate what is going on based on something that something else that was reported and obviously source it before we say anything on the air. But sometimes you can kind of follow along with breaking news through somebody else. So, you know, you, you, you said, and you mentioned, you know, don't surround yourself or give thought to people who are not, you know, in your huddle sort of or on your side. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that take you a while? Because, you know, there's going to be doubt for anybody in this industry, then to pile on, you know, rampant misogyny or expectations of women. Um, was that something you had to learn along the way or were you somehow super, super human? And from the very beginning, you knew how to say this, this matters and this doesn't. I, I think everybody wants to be liked and, and wants to be appreciated for what they do. I, you know, I don't think that's unique to our industry, uh, but what we do is very public and, and so, yeah, it did sting, you know, sometimes when you would first see something, you know, on social media. Yeah, I want to I want to help people out if they have questions or if there's a legitimate conversation. That doesn't seem to be the case most of the time, as you know. <laughs> um, so you can't avoid seeing other things that, that people may be saying or talking about. But I, I just, you know, over time, you, you use the word actually or the phrase that I use a lot. It was. It was from the NFL a few years ago. Who's in your huddle? And that imagery of it's just the guys that are here with us mm-hmm. in the arena on the field. Yeah, we want to we want to entertain and inform all the people sitting in the stands. But the opinions of one guy sitting up in the third deck aren't more important than the opinions of the people on our team who all think, hey, we did a good job. We got it right. And now what you, what you find, and, and I always get a kick out of it, is when somebody from Team A tweets, quit being a homer for the other guys. Right. And at the exact same time, a fan of Team B tweets, hey, quit being a homer for the always. other guys. Then, then we know we're, we're doing something right. And, you know, what I've sort of come to embrace is don't try and make your bias our bias. Yeah. Just because you only want us to say nice things about your team and only talk about your team, that's not our job. Our, our, we're, we're, we're not biased in that way. I, I always say we care about five things. When we come to your town, one, we want some local flavor, a good restaurant, a good bar. Two, we want fun interaction with fans, whether it's at the stadium or, or at the hotel. We want a three, a um, competitive game. We're not always going to get Alabama and Clemson. Very few of us do. So no matter who's playing, let's let's make it close. We want a fantastic finish, number four, and we don't care who wins. <laughs> Just we want to call a great play and, and share a right. great moment. And then five, we want a swift, safe journey home. That's it. That's our existence when we show up. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it is funny that it will obviously happen both ways. And, and that's why when you mentioned before, you kind of have to be Switzerland because you're going to get it e- either way, even if you are right down the middle. So if at any time you give an opinion, now, you, now you're now you making things even tougher on yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've noticed with, um, with you and Doris and I think Jess Mendoza most of the time, um, you don't proactively on social media or even in interviews, unless it's asked of you, speak to that criticism or you know, respond to trolls and that kind of thing. Your, your, your approach yeah. is about the work. I'm going to do the work so well that the criticism is, is inaccurate. Some yeah. of us, um, are, want to do the work well, want to make the criticism mm-hmm. inaccurate, but also decide that they're going to give voice to some of the issues, um, and make yeah. it so that people are aware of what's going on. I think it matters a lot that my job is as an opinionist, right? three hours a night on radio and in whatever jobs I'm doing, it's always mm-hmm. about what do I think about this and that, which makes it easier for me to speak out on those things. It becomes just a part of everything I do. Yeah. Do you choose not to do that because it doesn't feel like it's in line with your job or is it just a personal preference? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think first and foremost, I, I I did get some advice from some valued friends um, as a play by play announcer you know, that, that may not be the best route to go as a woman that may not be the best way to go while you're, while you're calling games. Um, I think one of the positives right now is there are so many women doing so many different jobs that guys are finally understanding, okay, they actually do different things and have different roles. It's not just that woman on TV. Um, and so while I, I appreciate a great deal what you do and, and what other people do in those roles of having three hours nightly to talk about it or on talk shows to talk about it because they are very important conversations to have and they are very important to help change the minds of people. But I think also part of my silence against the critics, one is, you know, rule number one in grad school, rule number one, broadcast journalism, don't ever give up the mic. Right. And so I am, a, I am of the opinion of this guy with nine followers, I don't <laughs> want to give him my voice to let him shout to the mountaintops whatever he wants to say. And also, I, I think, number two, it comes from, um, again, my sort of my competitive nature and my confidence as an athlete to kind of be okay with shutting those voices out you know okay i see i hear you but you know what you're wrong a lot of people think i i am good enough to do this and so you know that that's kind of the approach i've i've taken on social media is don't give up the mic and give them a bigger voice and the other thing is sort of that sense of there are a lot of different ways to create change and one of those is from within and even though you have people sometimes in your huddle that don't want you there, um, you, you still have to be able to make the change from within that group and, and try and change that guy's mind. I, I remember a funny tweet um, from um, Senator Claire McCaskill uh, when I was calling um, a Chiefs game on uh, the NFL on CBS. And it was really cool. Her husband actually was not sure about how he should receive me and a woman calling the game on the air. And over the course of the game, she Claire tweeted out that her, her husband was like, okay, 
I'll, I'll let her stay. Uh, <laughs> and, and she's pretty good at this. So, you know, that sense of I'm changing minds because I'm going out and proving it. And right. if you have if you have an open mind about it, I got a chance with you. But if you're coming at me from a misogynistic, sexist standpoint, you know what? Your progress is undefeated and you're you're on the tracks and you're mm-hmm. not smart enough to hear the train whistle and know that it's coming your way. So evolve or die. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's not much I can do to help you. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. My parents have a law firm and they are always struggling to find good people to work for them. They eventually do want to retire and they want to leave it to some partners that want to take it over. But they're having a hell of a time. And that's because finding the right people is really challenging. But there's one place that you can go where hiring is simple, fast and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And of course, I'm talking about ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Maybe I should send my parents there, you think? Right now, my listeners and my parents can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. Before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. The 10 questions everybody yeah. gets. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Oh, boy. Um, I would have to go with... How about uh, how about Van Halen 1? Let's go right back oh, to the beginning. Of the nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? An adventurous spirit. Huh. That's a good one. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, um, probably never having kids. Hmm. Or more importantly, never never getting grandkids for my mom. Oh, <laughs> it's never too late. It's never. No, 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 no. It's never too late. No. There's there's a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> I, my my husband has two wonderful children that that we have welcomed into the family. Well, there you well, go. So. Yes, yes. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No. I have had friends that have been Sarah, and I was much more concerned with making sure that everyone else around us was okay. Not one of my better, not one of my greater moments. Uh, I don't know what it is about fist fights. I'm not a big fan. Yeah, me neither. I actually yeah. got a beer thrown yeah. on me and a girl pushed me and everyone's looking around like, oh, this is going to be great. She is going to destroy this girl. And I didn't do anything. I was like, I mean, I'm going to break her face. Like, what What good does that do anyone? Yeah, you know? Then I got I a lawsuit that... on my hands. Exactly. I don't think that's usually the approach you're supposed to take, though, when someone does that to you. Uh, number yeah. five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Uh, Sue Bird. Oh, good one. Greatest good one. point guard ever. Yeah, and I don't know how she's still doing it. I've been hobbling around for like a decade, and she's she's still out there like 
Mm-hmm. He's crushing it. <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, boy. Sarah, I wish I could tell you that there haven't been a lot of those, but uh, <laughs> most embarrassed I've ever been. You know, I've never forgotten the time that I made my varsity basketball debut at Central Square, and they, they were televising it locally, and there was a camera cord right across the floor, and and my, my auspicious debut involved me tripping over oh. the cord and face-planting onto the court. I never even made it onto the court. I, I fell on the sideline. Oh, I've my God. In that moment. <laughs> I hope you went on to have a good game after that. I did. I did all okay. right. <laughs> good. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I would have to say my golf game. Mm. My golf Have you been game. working at it, or are you just I, hoping I, to snap yeah. your fingers? No, played Torrey Pines the other day. And, and nice. Did okay, not great. My short game in particular uh, is, is a little inconsistent right now. Yeah. That's always the toughest one to get better. Um, yeah. Number number eight, <laughs> you could be commish of life for a day. What one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Mm. Travel to another part of the country or another part of the world. Yes. See what it's like out there with people that aren't like you but do have a lot in common with you or places that are, you know, not – uh, in your comfort zone, I guess that's the important thing. Get out of your yeah. comfort zone. Yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes, the Twain quote. It's fatal to prejudice, oh. bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Travel. Yeah. Yes, yes. Such and my one. favorite Twain quote, why Why wouldn't you go out on a limb? That's where the fruit is. That's right. I think you used that at the ESPNW Summit. I did. That's my I, life. I uh, remember. My, my life. Yeah. My navigator. Yeah. I remember writing it down. <laughs> uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh scared um you know what we we lost my mom um nine years ago and so i think anybody who has um been involved with a battle against cancer or a family member or a friend you know you have that moment at the end of your treatment where the chemo and the radiation are still doing their work but you have to wait a couple of weeks before the prognosis comes in and and that was uh, just an incredibly difficult time and you're you're scared because you don't know which way it's going to go and yeah. and unfortunately for us it, it didn't go the way we had hoped but um that was that was probably the most scared i've ever been not not really certain you know what what the future was like and whether or not we would have hope i mean that really taught me a lot about how important hope is <laughs> um and to have things to plan for in the future to, to get you through tough times yeah uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, informative, entertaining, uh, enjoyable. Hmm. Those are good ones. Um, and finally, the bonus listener question, who is your bury a body friend? This is the person who needs to help you bury a body quietly without anyone knowing. Uh, that would probably be my, my best bud since childhood, Amy Manili. She, uh, she would know how to get that done for me. <laughs> I don't know what that says about her, but we'll leave I it there. Keep it quiet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then finally, who would you suggest that I have on this podcast? Who's a good person to talk to? Oh, 
How about uh, how about the new commissioner, the WNBA? That would be a good one. That would yeah, be a really good one. Yeah. Um, the first commission, in fact, by name, right? They uh, yes, they yes. finally decided to name it a commissioner. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Beth. <laughs> it was so great to talk to you. Look forward to hearing you on the call as uh, your busy, busy season is about to start up. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. That's what she said. Hey, if you like That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. It's live 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern every weekday on ESPN, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. If you can't catch it live, you can always listen to select segments that we post to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, it's jingle writers who are too good at their jobs. And I get it. You're supposed to, you know, write something that's going to give us an earworm and we're supposed to sing it all day. So we've got brand recognition. So it's the first thing we think about when we need that service or that product or whatever. But sometimes our sanity needs to be taken into account and in fact prioritized over your job. And I am looking specifically at you, Cars for Kids people. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. That song K-A-R-S, Cars for Kids. That is an act of defiance against humanity, and that is not an overstatement. It is so bad that it has been years, years. And if you mention it, everyone you talk to will know it and hate it. Again, because you did a really good job. And I get that. That is your job. You did too good of a job. This song is so bad that the new Will and Grace reboot actually had an episode where they had their own version called Trucks for Tykes that was so clearly about cars for kids. And the worst part of all of this is that this is a charitable organization and your effective jingle writing is infuriating enough that I don't even care that I'm ranting about a good cause that's helping children. This is what you have turned me into, cars for kids, jingle writers. It's got to stop. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Jingle writers, sometimes... The sanity of the good people of this country should be more important to you than your bottom line. And also, please, for the love of God, Cars for Kids, please, please, get a new jingle, please. There, I fixed it. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. You can download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Marty talks to country music star Justin Moore. No listener dilemma this week. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Give me a rating. Five stars is the best. That's what you should leave. Review, leave the dilemma you got for me in your review, and I'll fix it on the show. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.